Um, this morning I'd like to just talk a little bit about relational joy and the implications of it for our family and for our destiny and our future. Um, let me give you several, two or three Bible verses just to talk about the importance of joy today. Um, Luke 2.10, we're coming up to this verse, it, you know, this season is quoted all the time. It goes, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all the people. And good tidings is obviously the announcement of the gospel, a new, a new realm of reality, a new lens to view life through is Jesus and the finished work of the cross. No longer are we under the law, but we're under a person and influenced by a person who indwells our hearts. And so good news of great joy. And when we get the good news, the, the, end, the number one barometer that we've really heard the good news is that we're in great joy. Anything that's less than good news does not bring great joy. So a full revelation of the gospel will be accompanied with great joy. And so I think one of the reasons there's a joylessness in the church is because there's mixed grace. There's a mixed understanding of the so-called gospel and it's, it's, it's been diminished so that it, the weight goes down on our performance, our works, keeping the law, and not really knowing how God feels about us through Jesus, not really knowing what's been done for us. So this is a big deal. So Luke 2.10, um, woven into the gospel promise is, is a resident emotion called joy. Is that crazy? Like there's something very important about joy that the human spirit has been wired for. We all intuitively want a whole bunch of it. And according to the scripture, the number one doorway to that joy is the gospel. Is a real understanding of the gospel, not some religious Christian definition that, that packs on a whole bunch of rules and regulations. So... Apparently, joy is a pretty big need in the hearts of people. Okay, here's another verse. Hebrews 1, 9. It goes like this, and it's a quote from Psalm 45, 7. It goes, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions and anointed you with the oil of joy. Like the distinguishing mark of Jesus the atmosphere that emitted out of him was joy. It's so much so that it was smeared. It says, hey, I'm going to smear you with the oil of joy. He walked around effervescing and emitting the fragrance, the life, the energy of joy off his spirit. The way we knew he was Yeshua HaMashiach, the Messiah, is the degree of joy that, that exploded out of his human spirit. I'm going to tell you, that's contagious. You think? Like if you get around the person of Jesus, he, you will, there will be a contagious joy that explodes out of us. So the degree that we're close to Jesus will, will determine the degree of our joy. So not only is the gospel a source of joy, Jesus himself is joy. Like he's the personification of joy. Okay, third, Psalm 16 and 11. And by the way, I'm going to have these notes sent to you, or if they already haven't, and and they're going to be, as you're going to see, pretty critical for your future and ours together. These, this three-page little 
outline. Don't worry, we probably won't cover it all, but Psalm 16:11. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Oh, wow. Come on. Okay, so there's something about the manifested presence of the Lord, both inside and outside, that this manifested presence has in it an atmosphere of joy. So the gospel brings joy. Christ himself is joy. And the presence, the manifested presence of the Lord will be accompanied by joy because presence is joy. Now, here's what it's indicating. Relational intimacy, which is presence, relational intimacy with God and others is the doorway to joy. Is that crazy? So presence equals joy. Relationships equal joy. They're one and the same. They're very critically interconnected. All right, so here's the theme of what I want to share today and why this is so significant. Joy comes from quality relationships with God and with a loving family, both natural and or spiritual. So joy comes from quality relationships with God and people. And the theme of that would be, with people, we are delighted to be together. There's an inner delight. There's an inner anticipation. There's an inner electricity that comes when people that are gospel-centered, Jesus-centered, has, have an attraction with one another and long to be in each other's presence. That thing brings joy. And it's the exchange of the affection of Jesus between connected hearts. And when that happens, when that divine exchange of intimacy happens, it triggers deep joy inside of us. All right? Now, we know psychologically from all kinds of research that joy is essential for our overall spiritual, emotional, mental, relational, and physical health. You can't, if you don't have a sustained sense of joy and you can return to joy very quickly after crisis, your body will undergo huge stress. The fear and the trauma of that will produce stress on your body and it will lower your immune system. It will open your digestive system to all kinds of stomach problems and adrenal gland over fatigue. I mean, trauma and bad experiences with people which cause our joy levels to drop, if we don't recover and return to joy quickly, we're in deep trouble. And we're in trouble on all kinds of levels. Our psychology, our emotions were never made to be outside of anything but joy. See, we were created for uh, the Garden of Eden. We were created for heaven. We were never created to live outside of an atmosphere of joy. So anytime there's sadness, sorrow, grief, pressure, stress, rejection, it's counter to the way we were hardwired. None of us were wired for pressure or for fear. We were wired to live in heaven. So that's why um, we are so attracted around joyful people. Because joy, as we're going to see in a minute, is contagious. So sustaining, well, let's put it this way, long extended periods of grieving and sadness is not a sustainable way of life. You will break into depression. You will have suicidal thoughts. You will have, you know, something's going to be 
whacking you out physiologically, emotionally, and every other way, psychologically, if you don't return to joy quickly. So, joy is not a, a nice little um, additive to a hard life. Joy has to be the main dish. It has to be the main commodity that we eat. This has got to be like, we've got to imbibe joy throughout the day, all day, and every day of the week. So getting joyful is a pretty high assignment for all of us, for you, for me, as sons and daughters of the kingdom. One, for our own personal well-being, but two, for the quality of our life relationally, and three, for our impact on the world. We won't make impact in a lost and dying world if we're not intoxicated with the joy of the Lord. See what I'm saying? The thing that the magnetic influence that we're going to have, the catalytic influence we're going to have, is through effect, affection, love, and joy. Those are the three elements from heaven that we will emit in due time at a greater level because we've received it freely. It won't be that hard to give it out because it's an overflow. So I'm not trying to pump something out of you nor is God trying to pump something out of you that isn't in you. But what we want to do is be intentional and intelligently deliberate about joy. In other words, be ser- let's, let's get serious about joy. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. Let's get really aware of where this comes from. Now, the gospel is grace. The gospel means grace. So joy is a gift. The gospel is a gift. Joy is a gift. And it's the same word for grace, charis, that is the same word for gift, charis. It's the same word for gratitude, charis, which is the same word for joy, charis. All the words are the same word, and they're inter- and you define them based on the context of the word, where it's put, placed in a sentence. Is that crazy? So, so the gospel, which is grace, which is a gift, which produces thanksgiving, if you really know it's a gift. If you don't think it's a gift and you feel entitled, you're not that gratitude, grateful. But if you know it's a gift, you're highly grateful. And the, and the grace, the gift, the gratitude it releases the fruit of the Spirit called joy. That's kind of the, the chemicals. Now, um, I want to read a little clip from this book, um, Living from the Heart Jesus Gave You. And written by, the primary uh, author was James Wilder. And I'm going to talk a little more about James in just a second. But listen to this. This is how serious joy is. And think about Eli and Noah right now when when we're reading this, okay? Think about these guys. In a child's first two years, the desire to experience joy in loving relationships is the most powerful force in life. In fact, some neurologists now say that the basic human need is to be the sparkle in someone's eye. What a great phrase. Let's just say that. That's such a great phrase. The sparkle in someone's eye. The sparkle in someone's eye. Now, they've actually proven that when you encounter somebody that delights in you, physiologically, what happens is it releases tear ducts into your eyes your eyes your it, it, there's such a fu- infusion of of uh, endorphins and other things that hit your body when you're delighted in that it releases moisture into your eyes and your pupils dilate 
And that literally produces a sparkle. Is that crazy? There's a physical, literally it happens. There's a physical sparkle that comes into your eyes when you are loved and adored and affectioned. It's physiologically proven. So sparkle in the eye isn't just a, uh, you know, it is a word picture. It is a, a poetic statement, but it comes from real life physiology. So when you catch a glimpse of a child's face and she runs towards an awaiting parent with outstretched arms in an unrestrained joy, you can witness firsthand that incredible power that comes from being the sparkle in someone's eye. When this joy is the strongest force in a child's world, life makes sense because children look forward to moments when they can reconnect to joy by being with their beloved. See, life only makes sense when you're deeply connected to others and you're exchanging joy. That's the, because that's the purpose of life itself. So life doesn't make sense outside of connection. We are wired to belong as sons of God in a family. And you cannot define life outside of intimate relationships. Which is why I'm such a, a passionate about tribes. Okay. Wonderfully enough... That innocent, pure, that innocent, pure desire that begins in childhood continues throughout life. We never graduate from the need to be intimate, to connect, and to exchange joy. Like, as a matter of fact, it actually only increases. Life makes sense and is empowered by joy when people are in relationship with those who love them and are sincerely glad to be with them. Sincerely. Glad to be with them. Because joy is relational. It is also a contagious experience. Joy is produced when someone is glad to see me. Which stirs up a bit of joy in me. Then my joy is returned and he gives, he gives the giver joy. Um, and that is increased as well. So it starts to become a cycle. You cycle up in joy. This experience goes back and forth at amazingly fast rates, six cycles per second in a nonverbal face-to-face exchange. All the tie grows, growing stronger joy between both people. Okay, did you catch that? Okay, so the smartest part of your brain is the right frontal cortex that God created. Your brain is made by God. God built your brain for love. How crazy is that? When you... Your right frontal cortex is so intuitively intelligent, it can discern whether you, you're being sincerely liked or not. You can't fake it. You, you, it reads you. It, your spirit and your brain are working together, one, to protect you from dangerous con artists or to open the door to genuine love. So in a split second, you know... You can read a person's spirit. You can tell the energy that's emitting off of them. You can read their body language. And six times per second, there's an exchange between you and the other person in one second. They've, they've, they've done studies and they, they've concluded that people, most people know who they're going to marry in seven minutes. And then they spend seven months or seven years trying to confirm and validate it. But that's crazy. Like something goes off in the human spirit that knows, I belong to you, you belong to me, and oh my gosh, we found each other. 
How about how, what, what, what was it for you guys when you first, your first date, your, your first 12 hours, but you probably, your brain was probably highly influenced within the first hour. What do you think? Two hours. That's heavy. That, that's an incredible. So God's doing so much so fast that he would have to un, he would have to do something dramatic to unconvince me that we're on a journey into connecting. Jan and I had sparks. I mean, not I wouldn't say big romantic sparks, but friendship sparks within ten minutes. Once me, I want to pray in tongues right now. Just thinking about it. All right. So. Uh, becoming whole like Christ, become a, a whole person. There are many essential components to becoming whole and becoming like Christ. But belonging to a family, receiving, giving, and receiving and giving life, recovering from the effects of trauma, and contributing to a community. These are the essentials of becoming whole. Did you track with me on that? The essentials of... Yeah, you're still... Oh, uh, and I don't. Could you guys just excuse us for a few minutes? Two critical elements for becoming whole and like Christ. One, we have to be healed from traumas because we're stuck when we're hurt. Two, we have to grow in relational maturity in the context of natural and spiritual families. And there's five stages of maturity, and you can only grow in maturity if you're deeply connected relationally. And you can only be healed in relationships with a family. So the answer to both healing and maturing is relational connection. And if your natural family isn't healthy, then there's a default, and not a default, but a... Um, a, a hardwired-in plan from heaven for spiritual family that includes translocal and interracial because we're all built for the nations and we're all built to, to love people outside of our neighborhood and even our city. All right, so in other words, we will not be healthy or matured outside of joy-filled relationships. The relationships have to be light, they have to be fun, they have to be meaningful, they have to, and, and that right there will produce something staggering in the heart, the psychological lives and the emotional and spiritual lives of people. As well as I think it's the number one way that we reach lost folks is affection, love, and joy. Okay, it makes presenting the gospel pretty easy because we are the gospel, we are good news. All right, so here are several requirements for true joy. One, we must all be a part of a multi-generational community. We must all be a part of a multi-generational community because there's something about connecting old with young and everybody in between, there's something about connecting with the generations 
that triggers joy. If you just isolate people into their own compartment, their own chronological compartment, it's actually very dangerous. Just putting old people in a rest home and never connecting with, with other generations is one of the fastest ways to produce mental illness and the decline of a person's brain. Isolation from generational imp- connection is bad. Human beings, that as they age, were made to be around little children because they provide st- stable joy to keep them intact. They're not all volatile and intense because they, don't, they know everything's going to work out fine. Get around an old grandpa or grandmother that's raised a bunch of people, been around a bunch of people. They just, they just have a steadiness about them due to life because they've been through so many crises and, and gotten through and out the other side. They go, oh, eternity is real. We'll make it through. God is big. God is great. It's all good. Praise the Lord. And that's the power of an old person. Then the young people, they're goofy and fun and entertaining. I mean, just Noah is like a hoot. Throwing up his donut and going, hey, you know, I got a donut. And, and all of us go, I'm eating, I'm eating. I'm eating, I'm eating. Yay, I'm eating. I mean, come on. And we needed that infusion of his energy into our life. We need a steady flow of Noah. We'll just pass him around. Maybe you could rent him out. <laughs> Little, yeah, sure. No <laughs> hey, we've invented a rent a baby. We've invented a new. We'll, we'll rent babies to rest homes. Rent a, yeah, rent a joy. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> Toddler joy. On demand. Okay, so... There's quite a bit of that happening in Europe right now where they're combining daycare centers. Yeah. My dad, my dad thought of this. He was a paradigm-shifting kind of person. Uh, go figure. And uh, he started Foxwood Springs Living Center. And they set up... Um, institutes for children all summer long and the old people ran the institute for the children taught them how to do crafts woodwork ballroom dancing cooking carpentry you could, it was just unbelievable and these kids my, my own kids did it they, they went to this institute it was one of the funnest things they ever did hanging out with old people laughing their heads off and learning from them and it was great for the old people it was great for my kids and so my dad made sure even in the Alzheimer's wing, he opened up playgrounds for children in the Alzheimer's wings to take care of the staff. So child care was going on in the Alzheimer's wing of the, of the still is, and it got highly rewarded. No, the Alzheimer's weren't. No, it was child care, child care givers. The Alzheimer's got to hang out. Yeah, they got to hang out. All right, the second thing we need is what the life model folks call an Emmanuel lifestyle. And I love that because one of my best friends on the earth is Emmanuel. But um, basically, you know what the word Emmanuel means. What? Anybody want to say it? God with us. So it's an awareness that Jesus dwells inside our spirit. It's an awareness that the spirit of God is in us and on us. And uh, we call it FaceTime. FaceTime with Jesus. I love that term. But it's, uh, you know, we gaze on the Lord, the Lord gazes back, and we, we commune with Him. But the Emmanuel lifestyle is a way of staying sensitive to Jesus all the time. So, um, therapeutically speaking, let me just read this little section. 
The Emanuel lifestyle, it shifts the primary objective from resolve trauma and relieve symptoms to, in other words, patching it up or, you know, kind of what not to do, to help the person connect more intimately with Jesus by removing barriers between her heart and him, meaning Jesus. So remove barriers so that they can have encounters, like what our dear Jessica just did, or uh, Jeanette. I was looking at both of you and my brain went, wetted both your names. We gratefully accept the resolution of psychological trauma and the associated symptom relief as side benefits. But the more important priority is to remove blockages that stand between our hearts and Jesus. That's the number one reason for inner healing is to get people back into connection and out of a hardness and a bitterness and unbelief and crazy belief and connect them with Jesus. So it starts with recall of positive memories and deliberate appreciation to prepare our brain, mind, spirit systems for connecting with the Lord. So basically, the, you can train your brain to get in a position where it has a greater chance of encountering Jesus. If you're grumpy and negative and irritated, your brain is in, into a predatory, fear-based place. It's the predatory brain skills that are operating, and they're the most prime, primitive. But when you reconnect your brain to the gentle protector side of your brain, the right frontal vortex, uh, uh, cortex, not Gore-Tex. <laughs> Gore-Tex is never mind, something you wear. The right front cortex, when you tell your gentle protector side of your brain, look, I want to remember the positive things I've had with Jesus, the positive experiences, what that does is it awakens the mind to encounter. It, it turns on your receptor muscles. You see, when you're in flight or fight, your, your ability, it's like you turned off your cell phone, your smartphone. It's off. When, it, when you're in a position of fear and unbelief and pride, the receiver muscles, the receiver part of your brain is off. So you have to go over and turn the receiver back on by tapping into those, to the part of your brain that is in gratitude. So gratitude is a number one way from a good memory to reignite a connection with Jesus. It's called praise, people. And that's actually proven now in the brain that if you, if you, the more you praise and, and thank God for all little things, because all good things come from heaven, the more you've kept your brain open to the voice of God while you're working. So if you, cut, if you bang your thumb or somebody treats you crappy at work, the first thing you want to do is go back straight into a happy place and connect with Jesus because Jesus will displace your anger. The role of the devil is to set up a scenario where you get into the courtroom and you're always rehearsing what somebody did wrong to you. It's not the one event that the devil's so much after. It's the lifetime of, of bitterness that's going to steal your joy and deflect away from the glory of God. Is that amazing? The one event is just the trigger. That's all he wants. And he doesn't really care what it is, whether it's lust or whether it's anger, whether it's rejection, whether it's judgment, whether it's witchcraft. He doesn't care. What he wants is for you to cycle obsessively into that negative place. 
and never get back to joy. Because joy is your power. The joy of the Lord is our what? Say that again. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And the devil knows that. So if he can seduce you out of joy, you will literally be weakened physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Isn't that crazy? So he, he wants you weak. He doesn't want you strong. You're, and so isn't that crazy? The paradox is the happier you are, the stronger you are, and the more capable of you are of bringing the kingdom. So you've got an assignment to be happy from, in the Lord. What a nice assignment. Like it's okay to have pleasure. It's okay to be happy. In fact, it's, ne it's necessary. It's vitally necessary to be full of joy. All right, so... The, imagine, the Emmanuel approach to life includes healing from psychological trauma, but clearly recognizes that this is only one part of God's agenda for working in our lives. For example, the Lord always wants to build our capacity, grow our maturity, and spend time just being with us as a friend. Okay? The Emmanuel approach to life takes the tools for helping us connect with the Lord outside of special sessions like church with the ultimate goal of helping us get to the place where we perceive the Lord's presence and abide in an interactive connection with Jesus as our usual, normal, baseline condition as we walk through life each day. Can you? Did you guys hear that? Now, I'm going to send that in your notes. You need to read that again. But what should be our normal, our new normal, is that we are constantly plugged in to the presence, the reality of Emmanuel, God with us. Like that's our new normal. That's our baseline. That's like our non-negotiable. If I'm not sensitive to the Lord, something is still needing healed in me, Something still needs fit, repaired and upgraded to me so that I have this ongoing sense of Him. This should be our, new, our normal. Can you imagine a group of people that love each other so much, that are so healthy, that they're walking around tapped into Jesus and emitting the joy of the Lord? Do you think that, that group of people might have an impact on culture? Why? Because we're, we're outjoying the, the weed smokers, the wine sippers, the drug addicts, the craft beer drinkers, the, beer drinkers, <laughs> the ski bunnies, the rock climbers. Because our joy is more consistent and steady and deeper, and it's not circumstantial built on adrenaline. Guys, that's the vision of the house right here. All right, so again, Emmanuel identifies the primary objective, the most important priority, as intimacy with God. That's the top priority. All right, so um, the third thing we need for joy, first thing is community, a genuine community that's loving and kind. That's, that's multi-generational. Second, we need Jesus. <laughs> Emmanuel lifestyle. Third, we need relational brain skills. Okay, now this is, this is a very important breakthrough technology that we've all intuitively known. We've all kind of known that 
Some people are better with people than others. We've known about emotional intelligence. We've even known a little bit about relational intelligence. But we didn't really know that there are actual skills in, that the brain can develop that make you better, a better relational person, which is critical for your joy. So the better you are at relationships with other people, the more joy will be in your life. And by the way, as you age physiologically, you want to have a psychological equalization with your physiological development. But the problem is, is that most people are physically in their 20s and 30s, but relationally, they're back very immature. Their relational skills are very immature for whatever reason. So in order for people to go through the stages of maturity, which there are five stages, people have to, there are certain things that, that a community has to do, and there's a few things that the person has to do, and they're all challenging. They're not easy. Because you have to go from being narcissistic and self-absorbed to being focused on how to meet the needs of other people. So there's a sense of which your false self gets put down and put on the cross and your true self gets ignited. But there are brain skills, relational brain skills, like just like your eyes have been trained to see, your ears have been trained to hear certain things, your body has been trained to do certain things, like you train your body to do sports, like ride a bike, or ride a horse, or shoot a deer. Alright, so you can train your mind to play chess. You can train your mind to learn a, a, another language. You, can, you get my point? You can train your mind to do a thousand things. The number one thing you want to train your mind in is relationships, because relationships determine... The quality of your relationships determine the quality of your joy. So that means this relational technology should be on the top of our list. Now I intuitively kind of knew this and wrote my doctoral dissertation, but I hadn't put it all together at this level. So we formed a tribe, but we did not have a clarity about the gospel at the highest level. We didn't. There was mixture in our gospel message. And two... We did not know how to coach people in the relational skills necessary to recover joy. And that left us highly vulnerable. And so, with an assignment like mine to help bring the, a change, a paradigm shift of Christendom, that God is changing the understanding and expression of Christianity in this generation, that was my assignment. My learning curve has been super duper painful. So when I stumble upon some people that their particular expertise is how to help an individual person get de-traumatized and grow in their relational brain skills, do you think I died and went to heaven? Because they're handing me, as a spiritual dad, help, helpful information that's straight out of the Bible on how, to, how we can have a sustainable and growing reality of this in a group of people that would have never found each other other than the Spirit of God. And by the way, one of their number one theories in the life model is never isolate yourself from broken people because broken people help to trigger new insights and new brain skills in the whole community. See, the, the old therapeutic model is 
send them to a shrink, send them to a counselor, get, get the bad person out of here, get the weird person out of here because they're so troublesome and, and strange. But the life model says, no, we need a full community that is, that is on a wide range of relational maturity and we need to integrate people with a high dork factor with people that are less dork factored and more relationally skilled and that the, all of that together, this cocktail, this stew of strange relationships produces growth. And I've known that intuitively. That's why we started training everybody to do inner healing and deliverance. It wasn't just going to be from the healing team. It's going to be a way of life. Now we're, we're still needing to implement this stuff better. But the fact is, God is handing us great help right now. And this will bleed into your work. Especially if you're in sales. Especially, well, everybody has to work with people. I don't even care if you're a mechanic or if you're, you know, a computer geek. In the end, you're going to have to mess around with people. And our goal is to know this stuff so well on a sociological, psychological, spiritual, and consultative level that we can talk to the marketplace and bring the, the culture of the marketplace up to another level. But we have the technologies now to do that. So, the third thing we need, what is the first thing? Multi-generational community, family. The second thing? Manuel. The third thing is... Relational brain skills. The absence of key... Now, this is the key statement. This is one of the key thesis statements. And boy, do I know this, and I've got the scars to prove it. The absence of key relational skills and maturity are almost always behind failures of ministers, ministries, and missions. Sadly, the lacking skills are rarely identified, and when the lack of skill is seen... No one knows how to restore the skill. Relational skills are the basis for expressing godly character and identity to others around us. With, when the heart Jesus gave us seeks expression. Do you guys understand what was just said? You have a lot of well-meaning people that have encountered God. There may be some form of community but the third component, the relational skills, are so lacking that people get offended and hurt and their orphaned behavior, their orphaned hearts, and their orphaned skill sets are not high enough to be well-functioning uh, well and they implode. Because they do not have the skill set to work through their issues and their offenses. So there are literally 19 brain skills they've identified, there are probably more, that we're going to uncover and learn about over the next number of years and practice so that with a combination of connected hearts and love and delight community, with the encountering of Jesus as a way of life, and with loving relational skills, our joy levels will go up, our affection levels will go up, we will emit the radiant life of Christ and the lost world won't, won't know what to do with us because they'll know Jesus is real and they'll come to Christ. But a big piece of this is the relational brain skills. And um, 
I've, I've sent to you some YouTube presentations by the guy that wrote this book, Joy, uh, no, by the guy that wrote this book, Transforming Fellowship, 19 Brain Skills That Build Joyful Community. And um, his name is Chris Corsi. One, they're like best friends. They're all a part of this umbrella organization called the Life Model. But they actually have workshops and retreats and conferences where they do games and practice the brain skills. It's like a, it's like a workout conference for the body. It's like what a, what a workout, you know, like you can go to these... Uh, physiological boot camps and basically they feed you fat farms they feed you the exact thing you can't deviate you work out you get de-stressed you learn how to sleep and these quote therapy centers are just focused on how you can get um, de-stressed enough to lose weight because you can't lose weight when you're stressed out unless you're just starving yourself but which is terrible so they put on a similar kind of clinic that is an acceleration of the learning of brain skills. We are going to integrate this into our tribal gathering this summer. And we are going to do exercises and things that will, will because we want to focus on how to build intentional community, how to build micro churches on mission at the tribal gathering. So we're going to gather in a mass skilled people who will help us explode forward in all three of these things. Multi-generational community, intimacy with Jesus, and, which is revival, and, and knowing these relational brain schools, skills. That sounds like a pretty exciting travel to me, right? Like we will come away having God is, I believe that God in 19, uh, 2018 is going to multiply us. He's going to take us, in, add family and army together, and he is going to teach us how to be intentional and deliberate at impacting other people with the affection, joy, and love of God, and that we are God, that this is going to be our year of multiplication. That God's going to break through the Rock Tribe this coming year. This was a surge year where God put all the components together, He upgraded our theology. He upgraded, uh, he gave us a prophetic call to being a uh, spiritual warfare through Graham Cook. This was one of the most incredible surge years we've ever had. And it was a year of great crisis, which is producing surge. You can't have a surge without some form of confrontation or crisis. And we never expected it to be Elise dying or hope in the hospital, but that was for me personally. But our family has never had a bigger surge in the spirit and it was and it was also super painful but getting the big house finished was a visual aid of taking something really ugly and making a very beautiful and contextualizing our tribal gathering in a living room we rehabbed our living room and and so next year i believe is going to be a year of multiplication and breakthrough is that exciting Okay, so I'm going to leave you with eight helpful points. Just leave that there. Eight helpful points on how to build joy. And then I'm going to tell you currently some exciting things that are happening. Um, 
with me and us. So the first thing is, building joy means getting closer to God and to people, right? We all got that? So while it is a very authentic process that cannot be fabricated, here are some joy-building ideas to first practice with our families and then extend to the wounded community. Now, I will never apologize for a group of... I, I will never apologize for practicing a new skill. And, and because the devil wants you to think that it's uh, not authentic. Like sometimes we teach people to practice worship, whether they feel like it or not. Well, tough bananas... Worship isn't feelings anyway. Feelings come after a deliberate choice is made. Like marriage. Like marriage, for example. I make a choice to be committed and to love my wife. And the feelings follow my commitment and my, my covenant with her. So a lot of times, life is just, you start life very mechanically. And that's not wrong. That's just fine. You learn to ride a bike that way. You learn to go snow skiing that way. You learn to drive a car that way. So we, we, we move from being, and you heard me do, say this a lot, um, unconsciously incompetent. And most people in their brain skills, relational brain skills, are uncomp unconsciously incompetent. They have no idea how bad they're coming off. And there's people that you and I know that they're just offensive and they don't even know it. They're just not cool. So they're unconsciously incompetent. Do you guys know anybody that's unconsciously incompetent? <laughs> well, probably in some sense we all are. But we know of people that it, we go like, if they would just know how bad it is that they're coming off. Either they're fully withdrawing and pulling back and just kind of with, you know, just pulling themselves out of the score or they're inserting themselves in weird ways. They just don't know how incompetent they are relationally. Okay, now the best moment for that person is to be consciously incompetent. That is like the best, it's very painful. It's very embarrassing. Like I've had many people tell me, uh, excuse me, you really coming off bad. I'm like, that's my normal. That's how I was raised. And they go, well, the way you were raised pretty well sucks. And it's not acceptable if you're going to be a leader. And it was a very embarrassing, awful moment um, just because of my performance orientation and my religion. If I was really into the grace of God, that would have been a gift. But I didn't know the grace of God, so that felt to me like rejection when in fact it was actually love. The most loving thing Janet's ever done for me is to tell me how I'm not, she's being my helpmate and she's being um, creatively evaluative of my behavior. Yes. We're having an energetic conversation about my behavior. And at first it came off like critical. But then I realized this woman loves me and she wants, she believes in me and she wants me to be effective. So to, to discover my, uh, that to become consciously incompetent is a very wonderful, but very painful, but very good moment. Then you get incentive. Well, I don't, I want, I don't want to stay that way. So I am going to start becoming consciously competent. Now you begin practicing new life skills, new relational skills. To me, that is awesome. 
And so it, it, it always starts with awkward. It always starts with, with you don't know what you're doing. That's true for everything, for being an electrician, for being a manager, for being anything. It's always going to be awkward and strange and, 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 and contrived. It's going to feel contrived. But we're going to not apologize to produce contrived games and behavioral behavior making uh, excuse me behavior growing skills relational skills because they work are we all in agreement with that because down the road we'll become unconsciously competent and this will just be woven into our life and it won't be hard it'll be more fun it'll be like riding a bike this is like fun i don't i'm not thinking about riding a bike anymore now i'm enjoying the scenery but there was a time i had to think about riding a bike I don't have to think about it anymore. It's kind of fun. Okay? So one day, 19 brain skills will come inside of us and we'll move through the stages of maturity and be, go up into becoming an elder or an elderess. From being immature and childlike. Okay, so here's eight points. This is eight points. Smile whenever you greet those you love and use sincere Voice tones. Wow. You know what? I know a lot of people that they, their faces look like they're angry. They're, they're, they, there's a phrase, RBF, but I won't say what it means. That people's just, they're rested, the facial expression that they're rest in, the, when they're not aware of what's going on, is, wow, I, I don't want to even get around you. Yeah. Just smile. And remember, there's that delight. I, I love the word delight, a delightful look in the face. Now, guess what? What if you don't feel like it? Are you a hypocrite? No. Answer that question. Because we're being consciously competent. So you, you speak to your face and say, Face, you will smile. Face, you will, body, you will serve my purpose of delighting in people. Well, what if I don't, what if I don't even like them? It doesn't matter. I'm making a choice. I'm making a choice to tap into the, the Christ inside of me likes them. So it's your false self that doesn't like them. So why are you yielding to your false self and calling that integrity? That is not integrity. That is yielding to, the, the, to your false, fallen, first Adam self that God likes so poorly that he died, he put it on the cross to kill it. And so why are you yielding to your false self out of, out of the notion that that's integrity? Because you, you want to be congruent. Well, then that just means your false self is in charge. If you aren't delighting in someone, that just means your old man is still in, in large and in charge. Because if your true self, in unified with Jesus' self, you would not only love that person, but you would like that person. Wait, well, I don't, what, what do you mean I like that person? No, literally. If you are being animated by Jesus and your true self is alive to Christ, you must 
you're not only going to love them, you're going to like them. Now, you may not like what they do. All right, you may not like their attitude. That's legal. But to, you must like them because they are a child of God. So you never, 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 you make a choice. I will not let my old man, my false self, be in charge of my life. That guy needed to die. That girl needs to die. The one that's going to live is my true self with Jesus, commingled, and the two of us are going to love the hell right out of people. Period. The end of discussion. So I will tell my true self, underneath the Holy Spirit, myself, I will tell myself, you will love them, you will delight in them, and you will smile. And then you do. And you've and and fake it till you make it. I'm serious. Now it may they may detect a little bit of a fakery going on, but that's better than you coming off like a scowling, non-approachable, arrogant, distant nincompoop. Yes, second second point. Ask questions that invite others to tell you truthfully how they were doing and what they are thinking. Listen intently without interrupting. I want to tell you something. Those two things alone will blow you forward in, in your life in favor with people. I watch folks that aren't really relationally um, awkward. They're very relationally awkward. One, they don't, they don't smile that much. And two, they don't initiate conversations in which they listen. They just stand in the corners and they don't initiate. They wait for people to come up to them. They don't take the initiative and go to them and ask questions. A relationally intelligent person takes initiative and starts asking questions and listens proactively. They're active listeners. Third, take a sincere interest in really knowing the other person Work hard to understand the other person's fears, their joys, their passions, their talents, and their pain. Oh, beloved, this is like crazy awesome. If you get to the third base just on this alone, you're an all-star. This will change your life. Four, treat each, per uh, treat each person with dignity and respect. Not disgust and disdain. When ending a discussion, try to make both people feel affirmed. Dignity and respect and affirmation. Five, use touch whenever appropriate. Hold hands, link arms, give hugs, and use physical connection as effectively as you can. Why is the... Greet one another with a holy kiss in the Bible. And there's a few people that resist holy kissing. One of my close friends. Oh. I won't say, because it's being taped. And I'm going to cultivate a theology for you not to draw back and for you to learn how to give holy kisses. And, and like it. All right, that might be pushing us too, a little too far right away. We'll grow into this. But that person does give great hugs. Yeah, I was going to say, he gives great hugs. He gives hugs. great hugs. And right now, I'm happy with that, although I'm not going to be totally satisfied. 
until I've converted him. And that would go for some other people in this room. Now you have to be, it has to be appropriate. Um, you can't, you can't cross a boundary prematurely. I don't go around kissing everybody. That's bad. Now I used to, and it got me in trouble. But because um, I had that Great Dane, you know, I'm like a Great Dane Golden Retriever. I was just licking everybody and <laughs> kissing them, and it was a little overwhelming. I mean, I mean, what's funny is Sam Matthews still talks about our sandwich kiss. Now, at the whole conference, in front of all the leaders, he is talking about, he goes, I'm telling you, you better be careful. They're going to kiss you. If you go there, they're going to kiss you. Now, deep down, he loved it. He needed it. He wanted it. He was blown away by our culture. And so, but it was like, hey, y'all, you Oklahoma Cowboys, you get ready. Because they're going to manhandle you. Oh, uh, didn't scare him off at all. He loves it. He loved it because he knows that that's not embedded in their culture, and they need it. They need it badly. Is that why? Let me just tell you, physiologically, your number one organ in your body when you're first born is your skin. Your skin's your biggest organ, right? And a lack of touch and caressing and holding produces what they call a failure to thrive. So the skin is the number one conduit by which we communicate the des- your desire to belong. I mean, to, to our desire to have you belong. So by touching someone appropriately. Now, there's many women that have been touched inappropriately by men. As a matter of fact, the statistics are terrible. About 60 to 70 women of all, all women have been, a line, a, a, a line has been crossed and they've been touched poorly, wrongfully, in a sexual way without, it, without being consensual. So a non-consensual touch from a male that had sexual implications, about 70% of all women have been touched like that. Is that heavy? It's the, it's the exceptional woman that has grown up with a pure environment that's only been touched properly. That's the exception. So therefore, as a male person and a father figure... Um, I, have had to, I have had to learn how to be very, very careful and not crossing boundaries too prematurely. But uh, on the other hand, we cannot, we cannot capitulate to the, the abuse that's been going on in culture. We have to figure out a way to have the safest place on earth where, where genuine brother-to-sister communicate and, and father-to-daughter, father-to-son, uh, you know, physical touch happens in the purest sense. And we will not back off on that. But we must be sensitive and caring. And must be sensitive and aware of the hurts and wounds that have gone on. So, anyway, there you go. Um, Six, discover what brings the person joy. That means learn their love language. Take a time time to talk. Um, Do they like time to talk? Are they quality time people? Do they like encouraging notes, a helping hand, or even a walk? Custom fit your attempts to bring joy. Um, I think it's fun to make jokes. And even dad jokes are acceptable. Corny jokes are acceptable in a loving culture. So that should... And uh, puns. Puns. That's so punny. But let me tell you something. Learn what makes people 
laugh and brings them joy. Give them little, this is number seven, give them little surprises that will cause their eyes to light up and let your eyes light up as well. The joy builds as the glances go back and forth. Finally, cherish babies, this is eight, and children by establishing through words and actions that you are authentically glad to be with them. And I want to create a culture where the Rock Tribe, we go out of our way to connect with children first because we have the Father, Mother, Heart of God. So you'll notice me, what I do is, the first thing I'll do is, I'll, I'll say hi to you maybe, but and then I'm going to go beat a trail to Noah. And I'm going to interact with Noah just like I did this morning. I'm going to figure out some goofy, fun little game that's going to cause Noah to feel loved and belonging. So in this case, I was lugging him and kick, kissing him a little bit. He was slow to warm up because he was just waking up. And then we did the headbutting game. And we lightly butted heads, and then Noah began to take a little more aggressive action. And he was butting my head. You know, he was doing the headbutting. And we were in. I was in then. And so if Noah got 10, 12, 15 touches like that from all the adults in this room, can you imagine what his takeaway is for about church. Church is where I get loved. Church is where they headbutt me. Church is where I have fun. Church is where I get loved. Church is my, an environment of affection where I got all these aunts and uncles that dream and think about me. And by the way, we still have to do our, figure out our way of doing our education fund. Okay, so these are, this is a, an introduction to... Um, Relational joy as presented by the life model. And it is why it's such a critical discipline to learn. And I'm going to pray now for us, and then I'm going to turn this off and make some fun announcements. Yeah, you want to... I had a question yeah. that kind of came up from the beginning that I wanted to... Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of general points that I'll kind of answer to this, but I'm yeah. wondering if we could maybe have your input on on kind of focusing that to address a specific issue. Sure. Um the statement, more or less, was we should have an excitement and an expectation when we come together to be with one another. Yes. Essentially. Yes. How do we, assuming there's a situation where people are not excited to be coming together with one another, or they're apprehensive, there's mm-hmm. a, there's like, uh, I, I, I want success, I want to move forward, I want to have victory here, but I'm... I'm weary of hanging out with certain people, or I'm not even certain people, but just I'm I'm just tired, or I'm I'm apprehensive. There's not an excitement, but more of a duty. Somewhat, yeah. Basically, how do we overcome almost that a negative, du- negative almost, duty? Yeah. Almost, yeah. I, I, I don't want to paint it super mm-hmm. negative. It's not always that. Sometimes it's just I'm tired, and that's mm-hmm. that Matt, that's um, more influential than my excitement. Sure. But how do we address that? And help people to overcome that. Man, I think that is a fantastic question, which I believe pretty much everybody in this room can identify with that. You know, I, I, I want to tell you personally, I'm not always thrilled to see you. Thank you. Now, what I mean by that is this. I should, I should rephrase that. I'm always thrilled to see you, but I'm not always in the best. I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm worn out. I just went through a crisis. I don't feel like I have any gas in the tank. Yeah. So it's not like I don't like I don't like you or I don't want to see you. It's just I don't have the I'm, my resources are depleted. 
And this and, and the, my reason for asking is MKF leaders specifically, you know, have to help people to overcome yeah. this and we want to push forward through it. And I've come across this multiple times from tons of different people and I want to just have better tools in my pocket right. to help people overcome their apprehension and get more into excitement. So let's, let's diagnose this and then we're going to all answer it. Because I think this is a very big deal. I think you put your hand straight. First of all, I think most people didn't know all this to begin with. So they didn't know, oh my gosh, relate my way of delighting in someone else is critical for their well-being and for mine. Yeah. So now we have this body of material. We have a new, better working theology and, and, and in, in, intelligence. We have a relational intelligence about us now. So now we know that we're unconsciously incompetent. Now we're consciously incompetent, and we want to get an upgrade. And it has to do with, the, let's diagnose the main causes of this first. I think you mentioned them. Physical weariness. You've been working all day. You've been dealing with people. And the last thing you want to do is see more people. So let's put it this way. Physical and emotional weariness. How many of you can relate to that? How about relational weariness? So there's a sense of depletion in us. Does everybody get that? Like we're not, we're not coming in with overflowing. Would that be an accurate main problem? That would be a main problem. What else might there be that would contribute to this not being prepared, not being ready to give? You're in a season of grieving, for example. Yeah. You're in a season of grieving. And just, just saying that, I feel grieving coming up to the surface. I'm in a season of grieving, and my body, I don't have a lot of outflow because I got hit. I got traumatized by something so bad, my, my outflow is, is limited because I have to rebuild my inner construct. Mm-hmm. What else? What else? The littlest, thing, what? the littlest thing we would do would exhaust us. It wouldn't take much to mm-hmm. hit that wall. Right. Mm-hmm. Maybe past defense. What's past offense? Yeah. That, that's another one that would deplete. How about just over the week, you've been criticized and treated poorly, so you've been around a lot of people that weren't relationally healthy, and so the, your inflow from other people has really been bad. In fact, there's, you're leaking now because you're having to fight the offense and the hurt that came at work and through life. So... So you've been leaking all week, and, uh, and now you've got to come in and have something to give out. Mm-hmm. So. A lack of purpose and understanding of your destiny in that particular situation. This question is applicable to showing up to work, not even just showing up to MCAF. It's applicable to any, any, of, the, any of the mountains. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's well put, that we might not have a clarity about our own identity, I would say, as well, and our own destiny. So, so what happens is we don't realize the war. There's a war going on spiritually. There's a spiritual warfare going on around our identity as well as our destiny and over intimacy, the big three. Well, I can have, and I can have that clarity one week. And then within a couple of days, that can just get taken out oh, totally. by just the stuff that you get hit with. And all of a sudden, you had it, and now two days later, now you need now when you need to have it, you don't have it anymore. Mm-hmm. And you have to show up and kind of be a part Survive. of the situation. And you're just kind of like, I felt that way yesterday morning. That mm-hmm. was really hard, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. 
See, that, so the, I think the uh, the appeal from God, like, what do you do since you've been called by God to lead in that way? And, uh, you know, the scripture that Tim quoted earlier, the joy of the Lord is your strength. You know where that is? It's in Nehemiah. It's actually a command because the, the law has been, is being read by Nehemiah after they've been rebuilding the wall. All the people have grown up in strange lands. They don't even speak the language. So they have to have a whole bunch of priests interpret the law, that they're, like the, the book uh, that they are. And they start weeping. And Nehemiah and Ezra, they say like, stop. I commit because they're grieving and mourning. It's like, I commend you to stop. This is a holy day. You cannot grieve. You cannot mourn. The joy of the Lord is your strength. That's where it comes from. <laughs> That's Nehemiah 8. And it's, and I think like this is what a key that God wants us. Like it sounds contrived. It sounds weird that God can say, can commend us to rejoice to get joy. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, I'm kind of grieving. I'm sucking. I'm sucking wind. And it still doesn't change. It's just not, the command is still there. And it's a command from God because it knows that if you push through, so the rejoicing, which is tied only to the promise and to His Word, it's only tied to that. It's not tied to your circumstance. This is Isaiah 54, where you are the barren one, where you, your life sucks, where you have no money, where you, hey, you know what? People have had kids every year, every, and you are barren, but rejoice. So you're commended to rejoice to get to joy. And that, so like this is the, it feels weird to us that God would say, hey, because, because I walk in friendship with you, I commit, like you feel like you have zero to give right now push through I'm, I'm I'm commending you it's like it's like an order this is a command it's not optional maybe uh, kind of like them or something it's like a command to rejoice to get to joy it is completely counterintuitive for us like if we have to like brace our flesh our feelings our energy our whatever and say you know what okay I'm going to go, I'm going to do it, even if they don't reciprocate. Because my joy is bound in my rejoicing. My rejoicing is not bound to at least passing away, or to my best friend passing away, committing suicide. Or it's not, my joy is bound in my rejoicing. And I rejoice because of, because of God's Word. It is tied to His promises, to who He is. That's, that's how... God can commend us in seasons of deep grieving and weeping and mourning and sorrow. Nehemiah 8. It's like, hey, do not cry. Stop crying now. And it's just like, rejoice. The joy of the Lord is your strength. That's, that is key for anybody who is going to lead others in like in the kingdom, as far as love and joy and affection, it's like <clears throat> life is not just peachy. And so, how do you get? How do you get there? And I, I think I think that's a huge, huge key. It's actually it's a command, like a, a 
father who says like it doesn't feel like it it like everything around you tells you the opposite but trust me so I'm going to commend you rejoice to get to joy so I'm gonna I need to bring this off I want to did you guys hear that this was gonna be my answer that Mono hit it on hit hit on it and one of my the, the challenges of my life I believe that as you grow through the stages of maturity, every stage you grow through, you lose less of your false self and more, it's dying to yourself and living unto Jesus. And so what makes someone an elder in the kingdom is that they make choices and operate in a selfless way when that, whether they feel like it or not. That is a very, that is, that, that, that comes from a sense that they know that if they will lose their life, they'll gain their life. They know that intuitively, and so they tap into the indwelling Christ when they don't feel like it or not. And so, more times than not, you cannot even, I could not even count, there would be tens of thousands of times in my life I've had to make choices to lose my life. And when I did lose my life, all of a sudden, around comes a, a, a supernatural resourcing from Jesus that enabled me to keep going when I didn't feel like it. And, but you've done that with Noah. Like you've tapped that when you're exhausted and come home and you go, I got two little boys. I got Noah and Eli waiting and I got a wife waiting and I'm decked off. I'm mad. I just got mistreated. And you somehow you take off a certain, you, you uh, disrobe, you squeegee off in the car and disrobe and go, I have, I have a family to feed, meaning their emotions. And you walk in and you, Fake it till you make it. You don't kick Noah. You don't, you know, he's waiting there at the door for you. You don't like, get out of my way, kid, you know, or I got nothing for you. You tr Something triggers in your selfless heart as a daddy. You get down on your face, whether you feel like it or not, and you start playing with him. The next thing you know, stuff starts flowing through. Starts, it starts coming through you. And um, you tap into the life of another. And I believe in our weakness Jesus is, is revealed. So in my weakness, and I'm weak a lot. I'm not, I'm not as strong as anybody that thinks I am. I'm, I'm weak a lot. And in my weakness comes forth a strength. When I, when I tap that selfless place that Mana was talking about. So I think the key is to prep your life and go, today, right now, I'm a spiritual dad to this microchurch. And there are a bunch of Noah. There are my Noahs and my Elis. And I wish that that weren't true because I'm not even 30 yet. You're not 30 yet, are you? I'm not even 30 yet. But God's asking me to be a spiritual dad and a brother. So I am going to tap into a place for them that I didn't know I had. And, and I'm, I recognize there are areas that I need to improve mm -hmm. on with that. But on top of that, I want to know ways that I can encourage others in it. Mm -hmm. Because to just say... Uh, uh, you know, it's on, it's on for lack me. of a better term, to say like "suck it up, Buttercup," <laughs> be joyful is not an effective way to lead. Uh -huh. You know, like not always. It sometimes no. is, but not always. And so, like, there's times that I want, right? I need to fix that in myself. You, right. Yes. But also in others, like, how do I? How do you help other people to mm -hmm. when when they're dragging their feet to say, oh, okay. 
you know, to yeah. now say, let's get excited Let, or, mm. or let's figure out I'm ready why, to give. Yeah, or why is there an apprehension? Mm-hmm. Let's identify that and help find other ways. Well, I think one of the things I've heard as we've been in this for these last several years is we've got to learn how to let go and have some fun. Mm-hmm. Like, like let go of the agenda and just learn to just go into right. that childlike place and, and have fun, play with one another. Right. Be affectionate with one another, joke just with the headbutting and everything, even mm-hmm. with each other doing that kind of stuff right. until we break through that place. And then maybe we can pick up the yeah, agenda at that good. point. But just relax, have some fun because I have a tendency yeah. to just want to be serious. Let's get to this mm-hmm. because if you guys get the right information, you'll figure this out. And I'm learning it's not the information, it's that relational fun. I think so that was it. profound. I learn how to do that better. And That's what I was going to suggest. You know, we can't just think. Tuesday get, night, it's a meeting. We're going to a meeting. And I was thinking the, the fun, yeah. we, will have, we will have done something. Mm-hmm. And, and as we're going to read in these books, what you just said is more profound than you could possibly imagine. Playing, goofing off, I think that we haven't in this location uh, haven't done that as well. Now, uh, now Josh is committed to goofing off. And they have triggered, they have a fun night almost every six weeks or four weeks. They'll have a fan. They'll have just. They'll just play. That's all they do. And sometimes they'll figure it out. So these guys typically, they're such goofballs that I've been around them. They'll start meetings by climbing on walls and and doing strange stuff that is hilarious and it lubricates the atmosphere. So I want to turn this off. I'm going to pray right now. And but this, we're going to be exploring this answer. Like this, this to me is one of the biggest questions on the planet. So I am so appreciative of you bringing it up because there is no superficial pet answer. Part of it is suck it up, buttercup, <laughs> which is not exactly the way. <laughs> but it was hilarious. I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> but it was it was a sense of rejo- rejoice and you'll get joy, you know, whether you feel like it or not. But anyway, I just wanted to add in too. I think Lori touched on a huge part is is people's identity, and we've gone through Graham Cook and mm. and in our MKFs, it's very huge, especially as a family, to know each other's identity because when you're feeling off, um, as, as a family, we can speak each other's identity into each other and yeah. encourage, um, mm-hmm. you know, because we forget our identity personally sometimes. We forget who we are and as a part of the family and to encourage someone and say, no, you are, you know, you're our prophet in, in this MKF. Or, you know, you speak that identity mm-hmm. that ha- the whole family knows really helps encourage them of like, no, I'm, I am a part of that family and I need to be there because of who I am to that family and my yep. identity with them. And that's yep. encouragement really. But I want to say one more thing that'll take some of the pressure off of you guys that, um, out of your innermost being are rivers of living water, whether you feel like it or not. This is where we, we, we've let our emotions and our circumstances dictate our, our reality. When in reality, whether you're in a bad mood or a good mood, you're still a son of God and you have life coming out of you. So I have to remind myself all the time, okay, I'm not in a great mood, I'm depleted, but Jesus is still in me. So the weight goes down on Jesus and not on me. Now that takes a little mental gymnastics. Then the Lord says, if you'll just show up, you're carrying me into the room. And I've had a lot of people tell me, Tim, just your presence brings life to me. And I'm not in a good mood, I'm a little shut down. And so, but I know that that because it's really I'm carrying I'm a temple of the living God and if I just get my carcass there 
<laughs> I'm serious. If I just drag my carcass to the building, Jesus is there because he's in me, and the pressure's not on me, it's on him. So then the Lord says, just con he called it contact and transference. He goes, if you just, whether you're in a good mood or not, if you'll contact a person and make eye contact and physical contact, I will have a conduit to transmit myself through you to them, even if, even if you're in a bad mood. And I'm like, wow, that took the pressure off me. Like, I had to stir it up. I had to work it up. I had to fake it out. And he goes, no, I'm in there. Just, just trust me. I'll, bop, I'll blow out. I'll blow out if you'll just give me a fighting chance. But get your focus off you. And so I started practicing that, contact and transference. And... Um, and, impart, and then the impartation started coming, and I'd have people tell me, wow, I just I thank you for just showing up and being there. And I would do that as hospital calls as a pastor. I thought I had to be profound. I thought I had to come up with something. The Lord would tell me, don't say a word. You'll blow it with your stupid advice and your, your superficial, shallow, you know, pastoral niceties. Because it, be, it would be so nauseous. If you showed up and they're dying and you start coming out with your dumb trite phase statements, you're going to blow the, the culture of the, my presence. I want incarnation, not, you know, not, you know, uh, Anne, what's her name's last minute. You know, I don't need chicken for the soul advice. I just need you to show up and be present. Chicken soup, isn't it? You know, <laughs> chicken soup for the soul. And so I would just show up and I would touch, I would contact and transference. And the next thing you know, I'd be weeping and they would be weeping. Nothing got exchanged of any verbal significance, but presence took place. Incarnation took place. So don't underestimate the power of incarnation and being present and showing up and letting Jesus come through. All right, Father, in Jesus name, I thank you for this, this moment of capturing joy and we realize that this really is a life and death matter, so we're praying for grace to be imparted on, the, on all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.